All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. And how are we this week, Katie? Uh, okay, it's, you know, it's uh, another week of like really sad, fraught, terrible things from COVID to police brutality to um, everything in between. Lots of fun things happening in the media business also. Um, oh yeah, that too. Which we're going to talk about, but yeah. Also, no, make I, sure I, you rate and review the show. Just want to get this out of the way. Rate and review. We had some really devastating news about coming in one show behind David Axelrod's The Axe Files. So we're going to reach out to David Axelrod and invite him. This I'm talking about the, pod, the Apple podcast uh, ranking. David Axelrod, come on the show. We can do a combo useful uh, idiots, The Axe Files. And uh, we can call it the useful idiots files or something. And so you guys, if you want useful idiots to not be below Positive America and the X Files, I'm not even mentioning other ones. You know what you got to do? You got to well, go. Well, I mean, and, look, you, yeah. you got to do any. Uh, you know, this is a oh. by any by any means necessary, any means necessary type necessary. of thing. Yeah, right. I mean, right, I right. think I think look, any anything is permitted in, in yeah. this situation. I agree. I, I I would be I would be calling Axelrod and asking him to meet on urgent business in the middle of nowhere yeah. and then don't, don't show up. Yeah. Uh, so you could order lots of pizzas to wherever, whatever address he's sheltering in place in. Yeah. But at basic minimum, I want, in fact, everyone pause what you're doing right now. Pause what you're doing. Make sure you rate and review the show. You can just write a couple of words. I don't remember what the minimum is for it to count, but just write a couple of words. Uh, say what, what you like about this show. And also make sure if you're more of a visual person, you subscribe uh, on YouTube and get those like ding dong messages. On that note, let's move on to Democrats suck. Uh, and I guess it starts with me this week, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Democrats suck. I don't know if this is sucking exactly, but it's pretty fucking weird. Let's just look at, uh, Dan, if we could see the video of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and a bunch of other folks uh, kneeling in African kinte cloth scarves. For those who wish to, we will now kneel for our moment of silence. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for Jerry Nadler. Look at Nadler. He's not kneeling? No, he's standing. Hmm. Is there an explanation for that? Okay, I don't know, and I'd like to know. Now let's, also let's note the colors. I'll tell you why in a second. Can we actually, before we keep discussing this, I think it would be helpful. I put in a, a short video of what the Kente cloth is. It's like 30 seconds. I think this will help us discover the- Work through it. A little bit, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Kente is a cloth from the West African country of Ghana. Its origins can be traced back for centuries. Intricately woven, it's often highly colored and was initially created for royalty. Now it's worn at celebrations like graduations and weddings, and it's also become an important export. There are more than 350 kente cloth patterns, and many of the designs have their own meaning. Different colors represent different things. Blue is for love and harmony, yellow is for prosperity, and green is for growth. Much of the production takes place in a small village in the Ashanti region of the country. With a population of around 29 million, Ghana is a relatively small country, but kente can be found around the globe. 
can we look again at we don't have to watch the whole video but can we just look at and set that one of the images because i'd like to to color code i'd like to do a color analysis okay based on what we just learned to see if it's mostly about uh, love and harmony mostly about prosperity or mostly about growth green okay so let's look at nancy pelosi she has um we have blue and we have green and I guess that orange is the yellow. I think there's most yellow, more yellow than anything else. Well, they, they would they would certainly know something about that. Yeah, so. exactly, right. And then the blue is love and, and harmony, and the green is growth. So I guess, yeah, but if you look back, it's like a lot of prosperity. I got nothing on this. I, I don't know what to say <laughs> about this. It's... I, I don't know what it means. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's deeply confusing. I think it's an example of... I guess I wanted to analyze the colors to show how incredibly not only like meaningless this was, but offensive it was because it doesn't even like it's such a symbolic, empty, rash thing to do. It's also like there's a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where Larry David is trying to get his. I thought this was a Curb Your Enthusiasm. Episode. Yeah, it is. Right. This should have been. But Larry, maybe this is a deleted scene. Larry David is trying to get Vivica Fox, who plays his girlfriend, to break up with him. And she's African-American. And they're going to a therapy session. And he points to like a work of art. He's like, look. And she's like, what? He's like, African. Like he's trying to offend her. <laughs> that's what this is, basically. Right. That's, um, a, good, that's a very right? good point. Yeah. And ev no. Everyone's been mocking them mercilessly. Um, well, look, deservedly. This, is, this is another costless demonstration of something that the Democratic Party and this, particularly Nancy Pelosi specializes in ex exactly this kind of activity. Um, we've, we've seen some other politicians go that route in the last last couple of weeks, including, you know, my favorite is Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, who when he ran for president, uh, if we all remember, Mitt Romney during, during the 2012 presidential election went to the NAACP, gave a speech and lectured everybody on the evils of free stuff. Right. So that's what this guy thinks of race relations. But right. he marched this week. So so yeah. he's cool. He's you know, I mean, it, it's well, also, Matt, you got to give him credit for being really in touch with the black community. Oh, because of the whoop. There it is. Or let the dogs out. Let the dogs out. Oh, yeah. I, like, no, I see you got I see what you did there. It's whoop, 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 whoop. So you thought whoop. There it is. Who let the dogs out? Yeah. That that video is in the in the foyer of the Museum of Embarrassing White People. Yeah, that, exactly, it's yeah. it's like literally the introductory you know display Image. in the display, in, yeah. in that in that museum. Anyway, okay, what do we have for uh, for Republican suck? For Republican suck, I mean, I try not to do like sub like uh, symbolic things that, that Trump does, but it's like so related to what he does. So if we could just look at this Trump announcing how well the economy is doing. Um, <laughs> I think it doesn't really require that much of a, of a setup, but. Hopefully George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. So President Trump invoked uh, for his during remarks touting, touting the May jobs report. Equal justice under the law must mean that every American receives equal treatment in every encounter with law enforcement, regardless of race, color, gender, or creed, they have to receive fair treatment from law enforcement. They have to receive it. We all saw what happened last week. We can't let that happen. Hopefully, George is looking down right now and saying, there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. 
This is a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day in terms of equality. Sorry, prior to his comments about Floyd, Trump praised law enforcement's response to protesters. It's called dominate the streets. You can't let that happen in New York where they're breaking into stores and and all of the things. And by the way, hurting many small businesses, you can't let it happen. So I guess actually I was wrong. That might go in the museum of embarrassing oh, white people yeah, statements. Yeah, that but might- that, that implies that there's some embarrassment, embarrassment potential of Trump. I feel like Romney, I mean, this is a really important philosophical question about the eye of the beholder and who determines the embarrassment. I feel like part of embarrassingness is whether or not the person do it doing it would would see how cringeworthy it is if they if they knew that they wouldn't have done the cringeworthy thing to begin with would well they? there's a no but i think they can be shamed afterwards like i can imagine mitt romney being like shit like at least it wasn't a binder full of black people right i but, but maybe that's irrelevant anyway i don't know yeah i think he's got such a strong bullworth streak in him that he probably thought it was cool which is which is part Mitt of what Romney makes it has a Bullworth streak in him. Totally, don't you think? I mean, Bullworth was a was a visionary who was um, <laughs> who was who had to spoiler alert who was killed for his radical ideas. So that's right. Yeah, like 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 so many great martyrs in history. Like like so great many Christ, great Mor- Joan of Arc. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney. Uh, right. Yeah. They're yeah, you know yeah. the the giants. Yeah. Right? Trump Trump is amazing in the things that that go into his like his inability to read the horror levels of people around him is kind of it's kind of like it's awe-inspiring in a way yeah and and it is weird combo of he's very good at reading he's like a stand-up reading the room is great Yeah, he's very good at reading the room but i mean i think maybe he just thinks his points are so good that he's willing to like defy those expectate the expectations or I mean, the amazing thing about this Trump thing, can we watch it again and do kind of a voiceover over part of it? Equal justice under the law must mean that every American receives equal treatment in every encounter with law enforcement, regardless of race, color, gender, or creed. They have to receive fair treatment. The thing that's happening there is that um, at that point, he is, I think... There's a be- there's a really cool moment there where you see him kind of reciting something by rote, mm-hmm. and and then it looks like he actually starts taking this idea seriously. Like actually, you see his mind, the wheels turning, and it's almost like he's actually considering this for the first time. Well, well, yeah, no, that, that that's actually a good point because that does happen in his speeches a lot. Right? So what? So Trump. It's it's very well known that he has a lot of trouble reading prepared remarks. Yeah, he, he hates doing it. He hates reading speeches before before he gives them. Yeah. So he clearly very often will take a piece of text that he has not looked at yet, and will be reading it for the first time, and will comment on his own words uh, as they're happening, and he'll he'll be giving a play by play. On, on, it's, on it's very funny. It, like no, no, no other politician that I know of will go up with this with somebody else's text, having not basically not read it, uh, and and freestyle on stage, which is which is pretty unique to Trump. For yeah, sure. it's like you really see him. I really feel like he's like for the first time he's like equal justice under law. He's just kind of reading through it. He's not that inspired. He hasn't really hey, thought that's about an it. Interesting idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it must mean that every American receives equal treatment. 
Um, I'm just in every encounter with law enforcement, regardless of race, color, gender, or creed, they have to receive fair treatment from the, the law. law. They have to they have to receive it. We all saw what happened last week. I'm we sorry. can't let that happen. And then he goes, I want, okay, so that I really think is like as close as you get to a teachable moment for Donald Trump. Like he's really considering it. I think it really hit him. He's like, oh, that is, that's, that's terrible. That's horrible. That's horrible mm. what happened. Like, I think he's like thinking about it. The way I, I see it is his mind is kind of like thinking about it outside of the context of the protesters and the cops. Yeah. And he's actually like, maybe this is the first time he actually thought about it. Um, and then I feel like he's winging part of it. Like they have to receive it. Right. There's nothing to be surprised about with Donald Trump. He, he, he we, we say this basically every week right. that even for Trump, this, this was it, actually, it's not, it's, it's not it's, surprising anymore. It's not right? surprising. It's more agreed. It's, I think it's maybe particularly egregious. Maybe that's what makes it stand out. No, I mean, combining I, the jobs report. Come on. You don't think a little bit. Well, especially since let's let's talk about i mean his celebration of the economic numbers yeah okay let's let's see what happens when we spend six trillion fed dollars that we invented right. out of nowhere and pumped those into the economy like yeah let's 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 cheer that on <laughs> like, like it actually organically right. happened under your watch i mean right right I, I, sure I, but I, but I, even I, that aside right it's just like regardless of how how genuine how how accurate his his representation of that is it's just like you're really going to link a man killed by police fairly recently who has galvanized an entire movement because the brutality was so like visceral and palpable and it's shifted a lot of public opinion like that you're going to somehow link him and 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 infer and hope that he's looking down from heaven where he is because police murdered him and you're hoping that he's as happy as you are about the jobs numbers, which because, represent equality. Because not only is everybody in America looking at me, Donald Trump, but even the murdered black people in heaven. Yeah. Uh, uh, like that's where else? What, what else would they want to watch? Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there's nothing else to watch in the afterlife. But, you know, like this is clearly in first place. So it, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just like, yeah. Uh, Trump, Trump, Trump is a unique. Fun. I don't know that we're ever going to get another Trump. No, I don't just think because, so. Because, like, because there, there may be people who are as messed up politically, but like, just in terms of his character, this is a unique kind of creature. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so off. Speaking of creatures, oh, isn't yeah. that weird? I mean, you can pretty much just stop with the headline on this one. Oh my God, it's terrible. Here we go. Detroit Free Press: Unusual rodent engine problem has suddenly become super common, <laughs> which basically means you've been inside for so long, thanks to the coronavirus, that you have not turned your car on and there are now rats living in it because they found that it's a nice, snugly warm place to live. So, so isn't that weird? Uh, and this this news story worked on me exactly the way news stories are supposed to work. Like the immediate, the first time I read the first paragraph, which goes like this: There was once a little mouse that caused a big problem. The critter crawled up at the wheel of a uh, wheel well of a parked car, 
made his way over the brakes and up into the engine. Most rodents would stop there. It's a nice nesting spot. But this fellow had other plans. He kept going until he was inside the dashboard and couldn't get out. There he died. I didn't say it would be a happy story. So this news story is designed to make you think, oh, my God, is there a dead rat? in my dashboard because I haven't gone and looked right. at it in six weeks. And it's apparently uh, the smell is the, is the giveaway. Right. Cause you're right. not going to see it. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like being, so uh, you know, in, a, in an apartment building and, and your, and your, your neighbor's dead, but you don't, you know, for, for eight weeks and you don't notice right. until it, it starts to go through the wall. Like that's, so this is a, this is a classic, isn't that weird story? Uh, and I think, yeah, I think it's really, actually, I'm going to say, I, I think actually this is a matter of opinion because for me, this isn't, isn't that terrible because I have a lot of empathy for creatures. Um, not that you're a sociopath, Matt, but you definitely have a lot more, you have a lot less, um, you're less triggered by, by cute animals or not cute animals. I don't think rats are that cute, but maybe they are. There's something problematic about the, the mice rat, mouse rat dichotomy. We'll get into that in another episode, but there's definitely something there we're going to have to unpack. I was but, bitten um, by a rat once actually. What? Where? So, um, I, I, a long time ago, I was living, I had a summer job. I was living on an island in Massachusetts and, um, and I had uh, somebody on the island had a pet rat, one of those white ones with the red eyes that are kind of freaky Ooh, looking. Yeah, like an albino. It, yeah, and it was, it was cute. And he gave it to me to play with, not realizing that I had, I had a, a cut on my hand because I, w- I was working at a deli. So I had like the, I had a cut from doing something in the deli <gasps> and I had a bandaid on my finger and the rat was walking up and down my arm and oh, isn't that cute? And it smelled the blood on my finger and just raced for it and sank its teeth into oh it. And I ended God. up pulling it into the air. But, oh yeah, no. So, yeah, Did you have to go time. to the hospital or anything? Uh, me or the rat? You. No, no, neither of us. We were on, also, we were on an island. There's no right. place to get, but anyway, it, uh, I don't know why I told that story, but rat, rats, I, I'm, I'm well, kind of divided on the cuteness of rats. I'm really not so sure how cute I don't, they are. Yeah, I don't think they are either, but I think it's a societal norm that we have to push back on. And even look what you did, Matt. This is a very problematic thing. You had one bad experience with a rat. That's and right. Using and using that inf- to justify. From that, a- I inferred. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, check your dashboard. You might, have, you might have a dead rat in there. All right, what do we have for Isn't That Terrible? Well, I actually think we probably should have reversed these and this is, should have been my, the rats should have been terrible. But again, that depends on if you have, uh, if it makes you sad when creatures die. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you, you, you frame you like that the way as I'm though, really as though I'm happy. It's such a great yeah. dig. No, I know. but I, I get, I get, I think that's terrible. You definitely, you're more okay with watching rat cannibalism than I am, for instance. That's true. <laughs> Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even look at that. I couldn't even look at that. And you tried to make me watch it. Like that is probably in the, what's the thing, the DSMI, the diagnostic manual, yeah, whatever, the, the, DSM. The yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, that's probably in there. So um, for my, uh, isn't that terrible, which I'm going to reverse it officially. You don't have to agree to this. My, isn't that terrible is going to be, isn't that weird? It, whatever. Maybe it's just the same. Chris Cuomo apparently caught naked in wife Christina's yoga video. So Chris Cuomo, big friend of the show. This is awesome. Um, this is awesome. Dan, can you show the this um, article? 
Well, we know he can, but should he? Oh, should he? Well, I thought that people would want to see this image. <laughs> okay, let's, okay, let's see it. Okay. Yeah. So um, apparently uh, it says, if you think you've seen enough of Chris Cuomo after his much-publicized contraction of coronavirus and nightly TV reminders of you know who my brother is, think again. The CNN anchor was apparently caught in the nude in the garden of his Hamptons mansion during a social media yoga session filmed by his wife, Christina Grieven Cuomo, who, by the way, is a health person. So you can see him... Um, naked from behind. <laughs> um, it's, I think the window, now here's a question, is that he's bisected by some kind of vertical line. And I don't know if that's a window pane or if that's like him being, it's the equivalent of being like pixelated. I think it's a window pane, It's a right? window pane, yeah. Okay, so I, for, uh, for better or for worse, he's somewhat protected. You don't see the, um, the butt cleavage, uh, that's there in 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 bodies you just see like each side of the butt so it's pretty pg you know what i'm saying you know what i'm saying but like i have a feeling that people capture it's it's intellectually it's x it's not quite as like um revealing as as one would think perhaps by yeah, the there's no like twig and berries or, or yeah exactly or ass or, or yeah like there's that. no ass right basically you cover <laughs> it's basically his hips um for people just listening, I suggest that you find an image of this. But it's like a funny thing to see his wife. She's in Downward Dog, I believe. Um, and then it could have been a lot funnier, depending on the perspective. Like if she had been bent over and a dip closer to him, it could have been The look funnier. on her face, though, is great. It's like, see? She, I think she's like, um, okay, so is that my naked husband in the background? They deleted <laughs> the video, but some people took screenshots. All I can say is, obviously, uh, uh, anybody who follows the show knows that I'm pretty close to a free speech absolutist, but I, this is one of those speech equals violence situations. I agree. Yeah, this is, I was, yeah, this is violence. So that's why it does fall under the, isn't that terrible? Cause it is violence. Um, can we, can uh, we maybe talk or take a guess at maybe like the top three or four reasons or things that he oh, might yeah. have been doing. Oh, out there? right. Yeah. Right, that's yeah, actually yeah. a really good point. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause he's just standing out there doing something yeah you're right yeah yeah it's a good question to actually um, that's a really good question because right this is like a why what's he doing this is a there? very media aware person right although maybe not so much because this is a this is also a person who's who's been threatening people on you know well knowing yeah. while he's being filmed right uh, i feel like he's on the phone doesn't that look like he's on the phone? No, I, I think there's coffee involved there. Okay, could be a phone. Can, could be it coffee. Could be a phone. It could be coffee. His could honestly be both. Could be. Yeah, Actually, it, it be might both. be both. There's a couple of things going on here. I think there's probably, uh, and I am not one of these people, but there are definitely people who like to go outside just commando and just yeah. fly free and, and you know, have a coffee or... You know, read read ESP, ESPN on your phone. Um, I think that's a that's probably or, or a, a look thing up, dudes do. Look up the latest attacks on Italian Americans. Right. Yes. Exactly. 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 Called Fredo. Yeah. The, the latest hate crimes of, of someone being called Fredo. Right. Um, right. So so that that is a thing that 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 uh, people do. I think anybody who has seen the show Ozark, for instance, you watch, watch the it, show Ozark. No. Tertiary character likes to go outside every morning, walk the lake. Tertiary. Tushiary. Uh it's a, it's a it's a thing. Some guys like to walk out yeah. r- walk around naked, but this is this is a a media savvy person, famous person who presumably knows that his wife is having a live Instagram 
right. thing where the camera's mo pointing in, in exactly that direction. So, oh, I, so you're I, wondering if there's maybe some exhibitionism in I, here. How could there not be? How could you not have that thought? Yeah, I guess so. Yes. Unless maybe, maybe, is that what you were like implying, Dan? K kind of, yes. I was trying to get at the no, idea. Yeah. It's, it's like, what's going on in the daily life? What is, what's leading into these decisions? Right. And this, I think there is yeah, actual decisions There has happening. to be, right? At least on sub -sub subconscious level, at the very least, right? I mean, it doesn't surprise me that he walks around naked. Like that fits that fits uh, Andrew Cuomo. He's probably like, I'm a I'm an Adon I'm an Adonis. And, and Chris too, an probably. Oh, I always say that. Sorry, that fit that does not fit Andrew Cuomo. In fact, that would be really violent. But um, it fits Chris's attitude from what I've seen. Yeah. So, so, so dads to walk around commando. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of against that that yeah. phenomenon. I think um, there has know. to be like a discussion about it. I think. I guess some people are naked friendly families. Um, well, look, I mean, some people are just na naked friendly generally. They think nakedness right. is not. There's nothing wrong with nakedness. It's not I, a sin. Yes, I'm, and I'm not. Uh, I, I wouldn't take a position on, on that at all. Um, but, uh, right, this but, is a separate issue, right? The issue here is why you're doing it when there's a live video stream. Yeah, and I think he, I think there's something he wants us to see and talk about, perhaps. Right. So, oh my God, um, we just fell into his trap. We did. We're 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 in the net as we speak, struggling to get out. Exactly. Right? Yeah, like a yeah. dead rat in an engine. <laughs> <laughs> or or a not yet dead rat in the engine. A dead an engine. Decomposing a rat behind your speedometer. Yeah. Right. The one yeah. that you better you better go look for right now. All right. Well, that that was messed up and disturbing, and I feel yeah. I feel disturbed both about the rat and about Chris Cuomo. Okay, so let's let's move on. We have a bunch of stuff we want to talk about this week. Yeah. Let's let's start with the fact that uh, we we spent a lot of time in this show in the early stages of Useful Idiots. Uh, we were really heavily focused on really one story which was the 2020 Democratic presidential race. And last week, there was a milestone news story that um, basically almost passed almost without comment because of all the stuff that happened, uh, is, is happening in the country. Uh, here we go. It's from, this is from the Washington Post. Biden clinches the Democratic nomination after securing more than 1,991 delegates. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden has secured enough delegates in the Democratic nominating contest to clinch the party's presidential nomination, according to Edison Media Research. The milestone is largely symbolic. Wow, they used the word milestone also. As uh, all other major candidates stopped campaigning in April. So we now basically officially absent some force, force majeure situation at the convention or perhaps before then. We basically have our our setup between Trump and Biden. And um, well, what do we think? Let's, let's ask a couple of questions. What do we think about the, the likelihood of who's going to win in November? And how's Biden doing uh, in, your, in your estimation? So I've always said, and I continue to believe, that Sanders is a more electable nominee against Trump. But I do now think Biden has a better chance than I've thought before um, because of uh, I don't have the numbers, though. That would probably See, be I, I wouldn't thing. have necessarily agreed with you on that. Or you don't agree with me on that. Oh, wait, you wouldn't have agreed on the Bernie thing or you don't agree on what yeah. I'm saying? now? I, I thought it was I think I think that would, that's a that's a tough one. That's a close call. Really? 
Yeah, I mean, I, again, and this is something that, and this is no reflection on what I think of either candidate. Of course, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, you know, one of the, I thought the biggest story of last year really was that Biden, everybody kept expecting him to plummet. They kept expecting to find out that the support right. for him was hollow. Right. Um, and that everything that we found out since then suggests otherwise, that he, he actually continues to outperform expectations on a pretty regular basis. Uh, and he has he has a significant amount of support among a certain kind of voter uh, who's older, right? Um, it doesn't follow politics a lot, isn't terribly influenced by the media, uh, and is you know voting largely on name recognition or on other things that don't have a whole lot to do with policy. He's pretty strong with those voters, um, and you know so it, the the media estimate of of how good a candidate he is and how good he is really, I think is often confused. I mean, I made that mistake. I thought he was a terrible candidate that couldn't possibly sort of go this far. And, you know, I was wrong. So when I, and to, to be clear, like I obviously, everyone knows that I like Bernie more than Biden, but I used to think that they were like equally electable roughly against Trump. And then once Biden started campaigning and like mm-hmm. flubbing so many things, it's not because of his policies that I thought he was then less electable against Trump than Bernie. It was because of his presentation. And we'll see because we haven't had any debates yet. But my big thing is that once they are uh, t- now, to be fair, Biden has this kind of shameless, unapologetic um, aspect to him that Trump has, too, that tr- will maybe help him. What he doesn't have, though, that Bernie has is a kind of um, um, immunity from attacks of hypocrisy and inconsistency. Now, Bernie, of course, has the crazy socialist Bernie stuff that Biden would not be vulnerable to. But I've always thought that Trump's biggest weapon is calling out people on their hypocrisy and inconsistency because that's a standard to which he is not held at all. So it's just like totally, it's a bottomless, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Well, okay, I'm, I'm torn on this because there, there are two ways to look at this. One is, Dan, if we could look at the video of Biden speaking last week about the 10 to 15 percent yeah. of people. If elected, my view is that you will have to will have to address these issues straight on. And the words the president says matter. So when a president stands up and divides people all the time, you're going to get the worst of us to come out, the worst in us all to come out. President talks constantly talks about equality without without lecturing. Talks about and has administrations that looks like the country and the rest. It changes attitudes, and it's about the attitude of the country. Do we want our kids? Do we do we really think this is as good as we can be as a nation? I don't think the vast majority of people think that. There are probably anywhere from ten to fifteen percent of the people out there that are just not very good people. This is a reminder of why Biden during the debates would say, I yield my time because (laughs) you just talk long enough and he's going to undermine even a fairly coherent point with a with an either offensive statement, a weird statement, a a politically, um, you know, unwise, ill-advised statement. And that's what we saw there. Well, well, he starts off talking about how it's it's the duty of a president of a president not to divide people, and then he, right. like literally five seconds yeah, later, yeah, exactly, he's, right. he's saying fifteen percent of the country are just bad people. So, right, that's, and it's interesting because 
the thought on this has changed multiple times in the, in the press since this idea first. Well, okay, it didn't first pop up in 2016. It really first popped up with Mitt Romney right. and his 47%, which was infamously described as one of the great political unforced errors of all time, right? Because and just he, for people who don't know, that was when he was what caught, um, he was audiotaped or videotaped secretly at an event saying that 48% of the country was... Yeah, May 17, 2012, the quote, 48%, 49%, that supports President Barack Obama are, quote, people who pay no income tax. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. The so, poor's. The poor's. The poor's, right. So, so the, the, okay, he wasn't saying that publicly, but he shouldn't have said right. it at all. Like, yeah. you know, when you, when you start taking huge pluralities of people and basically saying that they, they, they don't have any worth or whatever it is, in politics, that's, that's always a bad thing. You, you don't, you don't want to just up front give away huge chunks of votes. It doesn't make, it never makes right. any sense, right? Reminds so, me of when David Frum said, like the majority or a lot of Bernie's voters like don't pay their bills ahead of time or something. Right. Yes, yeah. right. They don't pay their cable bill or whatever yeah, the hell yeah. it was, right? Yeah, like anybody has cable anymore. Right. You right. dope. So, but then, and then when Hillary did this in 2016, it, it went through a progression on this because when she, when she talked about, and it's interesting that the percentages are basically the same. She said that like one third of the Republicans are deplorables, which yeah, I guess works out to be about 15% of all people. Right. Right. So they're, so, they're getting the same sociopolitical voters. Science, sociological memos. Yeah. Right. And and the initial reaction to that in the press was that that was, a, again, a huge political unforced error. Then as time progressed, it became completely um, acceptable in the news media to basically say that all all Trump voters right. were were, you know, racist, white supremacists, right. which look, let, let's let's leave that question sure, out of it right be, now yeah. but for for a politician right to say that um is is interesting because now now you're you're seeding all those votes basically right right so so now you know, biden is, uh the question is what kind of a candidate is he gonna is he gonna be is he gonna take that same strategy which because was hillary's strategy was based it was very revealed in that moment because what she was basically saying was i'm not gonna get any, any of these votes. I'm not going to try. I don't have anything to say to any to and any of those. And then she lost. And then she lost. And and so, like, what's what's the th thought pattern there? Right. Now, if if, if Biden's going to run the same campaign and that is going to be based on, let's try to get turnout as high as we can on our side and and uh, go go hard at Trump's negatives and see if that works out. You know, whereas Bernie's strategy was was very different, right? Yes. It was a it was a message that was designed to say, look, there there are people out there. Maybe there might be some who will listen, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and that so it's it's a very it's a very major difference. Yeah, in philosophy. and it's also it's like it's also Bernie's thing was I get it. You're angry. You should be angry. Don't scapegoat people. This is why you should be angry. Versus Trump saying I get it. You should be angry. Blame Mexicans and Muslims. Right. And then you got Biden and Hillary basically being like mum on that issue, like not right. speaking to people's anger, not addressing it in any way except for shaming it, which, of course, then pushes them when you're the only Democrat or non-Trump person into the race. You're just doing PR, free PR for Trump. Right. And so uh, I don't you have to wonder, you have to wonder, like, if that's if that's going to hurt him as much as it hurt Hillary. But the one thing I will say that I think 
to me is is a major difference. Now, you can already see how Trump is trying to fashion his rhetoric around the response to these protests. He's definitely going to try to cast Democrats as the party that wants to defund the police, right. that believes in violent protest, right? That doesn't, or it's more like I feel like they believe it, that police shouldn't defend themselves from violent violent protesters. That's a, or, a minor minor point. Forget that. Or shouldn't that or shouldn't worry about property destruction or yeah, admit that it's right. taking place or or right. you know or worry right. about arson or any of those things, right? Yeah. Um, he's he's going to try to throw that in the face of of Biden, but the difference is that, I, that those criticisms won't stick to Biden because Biden has not taken those positions. No, and he said he doesn't want to defund the police. And right, he and he went the other direction. the budget, yeah, which will maybe harm him in the, I mean, if this were during the primary, that would maybe harm him, but yeah, I don't think he's going to lose. I'm trying to think what will lose Biden's support from the left. Well, but so, there, there's a couple of things, but Biden, his, his, uh, demographic pro- profile is so much different than it's not so much different. It's significantly different from Hillary's. He Trump did much better than than Hillary did with older people. Yeah, he did extremely well with people who dislike both Hillary and Trump. Uh, uh, you mean with Bernie? Wait, Trump did better with yes. people who dislike both of them. Yeah, there were there were something like nineteen percent of voters disapproved of both candidates, and Trump Trump won those voters huh. by a margin of about two to one. Because they were like, "Fuck it, let's try this." Because they they did, disliked Hillary more. Right, I get it. Yeah. Right. Okay. They, so they're anti. Okay, got it. So the, yeah. the we're already seeing statistics showing that there's over the Biden overwhelmingly does much better with um, with older voters yeah. than Trump does. Uh, so that's that's a major change just right there. I mean, no, for better or for worse, like he's a much more not necessarily me, but like he is a much more. And look, sexism, I'm sure, plays a part of this. He's a much more, quote unquote, likable candidate like he is. He does not have, and a lot of it is sexism. Like uh, there are a lot of things that Hillary does that people who are sexist don't like. Like she's kind of, uh, and that that they're not bad things in my opinion. But Biden doesn't have to deal with any of the things that are are triggering of of people who are sexist because he's not a woman. And I do think that Hillary's various things that she did. I mean, I disliked her for many reasons, but not obviously because she was a woman. I, and her, her being kind of like an, a, a strong, um, nerdy, opinionated woman was triggering for it's something sexist people don't like. I'll just put it that way. Um, I like that about her. I didn't like her, her positions, but. I always so thought that- Hillary was way, was way more interesting and believable when she lets her guard down and yeah. she says what she actually thinks. Yeah, like, like the, yeah. the Hillary the, who came out in those speeches the that were released. Yeah, oh, well, oh, no, the, 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 the Wall Street speeches yeah. where she's, she's saying all kinds of things that I totally disagree with, but she's saying it in a way that's natural and, and it's, it's clear that this is what she actually thinks about stuff. It's it, what voters I think were, were, and yeah, clearly there's a sexism aspect to it. But what I think what triggered a lot of voters with Hillary was this impression that she's phony. Yeah, lack of authenticity, yeah. Yeah, and that she, you know, look, she she ran two completely opposite campaigns in 2008 and, and 2016. In 2008, she she rejected explicitly identity politics and 
uh, aggressively white working Susan, class yeah. member. She remember her whole yeah. re, 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 like my grandfather worked in a lace factory. She wins Pennsylvania that way. Then she runs completely the opposite campaign against Sanders, who and she has surrogates denouncing him as a as a cis white male uh, who exactly. who doesn't understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So stuff like that. I think you know it's well. She couldn't win on the identity politics, I guess, with Obama. Right. But that's uh, but but yeah. people see those changes sure, sure, and sure, I, yeah, yeah. right. I yeah. Not that Biden isn't all over the place too. It's yeah. That's, but he has a little bit of the Trump thing. He has a little. So it's some gender stuff, sexism stuff, and then it's some personality like shameless shooting off the you know shooting from the hip, off the cuff, all over the place stuff. That again, I think I almost think that makes you more likable, because I think people. I don't know. I just think people and he has baggage, but it's more recent. I mean, the baggage should be his crime bill, but he didn't have like this decades and of trade and, and trade and all that stuff. Yeah, he's his baggage and, is, yeah. yeah, but he doesn't have um, he doesn't have the like, you know, concentrated, coordinated, right, vast right wing conspiracy, which, of course, the Clintons weaponized to defend themselves in ballot critiques. But that existed. So Hillary had a lot of stuff coming with her on that. Biden has yeah, Burisma, but no one's talking about that. Um, right. Barely yeah. anyone except for the right wing media. Um, yeah, it's he is he is kind of like a, a, I used to say that I would be like, if I were less of a good person, I would want Biden to win the primary because he would be so amusing to watch with Trump because they'd be so <laughs> funny. Um, well, it is going to be look, it, it's going to be. That, that's going to be some very interesting debates if they actually happen uh, between a person who can't talk and a person who shouldn't talk. Uh, like, I mean, if we had to place a bet right now, wouldn't you bet on Biden to win? Yeah, I said, yeah, I would. And I think, yeah. No, I said that from the beginning. I now think he can win in a way I didn't. I mean, I won't be, I, I think anything could happen. Haven't the, the difference between him and, and, and Trump, isn't that a lot greater now? Yes. Trump's numbers have gone down in the last last couple of weeks. But I think, uh, you know, as we've the, one of the consistent themes of this election season has been that the whole world changes every two days. Yeah, it's true. And and attitudes change dramatically. Right. And we you and know, polls are not that reliable. And the polls, polls aren't that reliable. Know, said Clinton was going to win. Right. Polls. And, and they showed a pretty significant number of a significant lead for her uh, at this stage of the race. That's actually not uncommon. I mean, you, you know. Uh, you might remember Dukakis had a seven point, 17 point lead around this time of the race. I mean, things. And then he did the tank picture. What happened? I don't remember what happened. There were there, there was a lot of stuff that went on in that race. But the we have so much stuff that's going to happen between now and November. But I think it's worth pointing out that that um, you know for all the things that have gone wrong uh, for Democrats in the last year, they're in a very strong position, and all the criticism that people like you and me have leveled at them. They, they're in a position to, to win the presidency yeah. right now, which is and not listen to us. Yeah, exactly. Our exactly. direct line that we used to have. Right. Into right. Nero Tandon's ear and uh, Biden's ear or whatever. But, you know, Biden's been pretty absent during this crisis. And yeah. every time he, he, he appears on television, it seems like he gets himself into trouble every, yeah, every few minutes. Yeah, but this so. is like a golden, how many golden hairs up? Would this be? I feel like he did pretty well for Biden. This this is this is two African kinte cloth okay, scarves yeah. way up. Way right? up, yeah, right. Yeah. What's the, the more kinte scarves, the worse of a uh, the more stoned or the worse of a comment, or I, is that the way it goes? 
I don't know. Uh, It's something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I think we should stick to golden leg hairs on this. Golden leg hairs. Okay. I think we do the Kentes on performative, substance-free, embarrassing acts. That's where we do it. Yeah. Okay. I didn't. I didn't um, do so well with predictions in 2016 in the general election. Um, So I don't. I don't know how how I would predict this one, but it feels to me like Biden. Feels to me like Biden is, is, yeah, I is think in so a strong position, but who knows? So what do you want to bet? What are the odds that you're putting on him? We should do this on um, David Reese's website. Yeah, Dan, what, what do you feel like the odds would be here? I feel like this is like a three to five Biden or something like that, right? So I would do American odds. I would, I guess I would put Biden right now at like a minus 125. Minus 125, yeah. Okay. Which is That's pretty a- favorable, I feel like, at this point. That that might even be a little too high, maybe minus 120. You th- okay, that's giving Trump a little bit more credit, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the unpredictable, the Trump is just so unpredictable, his voters are unpredictable. We always under- underestimate him, so yeah, that's probably minus 120 feels about right. Feels right, right Katie? I don't know. I mean, I was going to say minus um, 150. Okay, that's good. That's even stronger, I- yeah. I don't know what these numbers mean or what direction. No, I'm going to say plus 120. Plus 120? So he's the underdog? I'm going to say zero. Even odds. Even odds. Okay. Even odds. That's exactly what I meant. All right. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Another thing going on this week, which is going to be kind of a difficult discussion, right? Yeah. If we were in person, we'd have a pillow that would pass to each other when we speak. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, pillow, pillow. yeah we, need, we need to we need to have a, a moderator yeah. uh, it's actually called a facilitator Matt. a facilitator yeah okay a facilitator. or a mediator or a mediator a mediator with like a running brook in the background to, yeah, to exactly. put us in a calm yeah. place yeah um all right i think most people know uh but most people who follow the media know this was a Pretty extraordinary week in the history of the news media. Um, And let's just run through some of the things that happened. Uh, There were staff revolts or uprisings um, or protests. Uh, By my account, I think it was eight major news organizations. Uh, Probably the most famous one was the New York Times, where uh, staff protested the publication of an editorial by Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, that was entitled Send in the Troops, um, that was in favor of, uh, argued in favor of enlisting the military to help police put down or pacify protests. Uh, that episode resulted in the firing of the opinion page, uh, editor, opinion page editor James Bennett. Um, we saw some other some other incidents we saw the editor of the philadelphia inquirer uh was uh forced to step down after okaying a headline that read buildings matter too there were some other things that had that happened i think you know uh, a previous guest on the show lee fong at the intercept in in an episode that continues to have ramifications over at first like media and the intercept continues to be discussed he was um accused of being uh criticized uh and called racist by some colleagues uh one colleague and then some other colleagues uh liked and agreed with that response and then some other folks from other publications uh also uh agreed 
on that and put a lot of pressure and he had to go to HR and issue a public apology. And that matter is still kind of winding oh, its way through, through, um, through that organization, which with some consequences that haven't yet been made public over there. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And this is part of a trend that uh, has been growing in the press for years now. Uh, we, we've talked about a couple of these incidents. Um, another friend of show, Aaron Mate, um, triggered a, a, uh, an an in-house. Attempted, an attempted uh, uprising, a quelled well, sort of. I mean, you know, everybody from the editor-in-chief on down in that episode uh, denounced the decision to run a, a, an article where this is early in the Russiagate phenomenon where he um, he basically said we have to question what the evidence is in, in the argument for a Trump-Russia collusion case. Um, Wow. And everybody publicly disagreed with that. And there was significant tension between the editors and the publishers. Uh, there was some other stuff that went on in-house there that was... The publishers being Katrina Vandenhuvel? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. she was the the lone uh, Mate defender? Right, basically? right. Okay. Yeah, along with her husband, Stephen, Stephen Cohen. Cohen obviously. Right. Yeah, obviously. And probably some other board members. I assume like Doug Henwood was... Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So... Um, Basically, we're. I think the issue here is what does this mean for the for the news media? I I personally think this is a really bad thing for the press um, because the no matter what you think of whether it's Tom Cotton's editorial and I disagreed with that editorial um, or episodes like you know and I also disagree with the headline "Buildings Matter Too." I think that was terrible writing because the word matter makes it imply that there's some kind of equation between Quite black lives and buildings. Yeah. But the, the, the thing that I would say is that like polls show that 89% of the, of the country are concerned about the destruction of property yeah. in these, in these protests. So if it becomes a job threatening, um, offense to, write, um, to unpop not even right. unpopular, right? Like problematic or offensive. Right. And I, 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 I've always thought that, that what you're mainly accomplishing when you when you filter out stuff like this, it, it, you know, you're not agitating. What you're doing is you're you're giving readers a false sense of what the actual what actual opinions are out there right. in the population. It's it's similar to me to what happened when reporters stopped uh, talking about the, the small crowd sizes at Hillary's events. Right. right? Or the emails. They, or the emails, right? They they they, they thought they were helping. They, they they were helping Hillary, right? And I would argue that the opposite was the was the case. Like they might have they might have that might have led to voter apathy because people right. thought she was so short. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to hear what you think about this. I I thought this was a pretty messed up situation. I mean, I think it's it's like complicated, obviously, because one of the things is the line between the media reflecting opinions and shaping opinions. And op-eds often have like a call for action and a newspaper or a publication has a choice of whether or not to endorse that. And just taking the New York Times article, I thought that James Bennett, his his tweet about how the Times owes its readers like um, a diverse range of views, especially when they come from policy makers, I thought was interesting. I got what he meant, but I also thought it, he was like kind of outing himself or outing the times because 
That is a problem with most places is that they're echo chambers for the already powerful. And right, like, yeah, I don't agree with the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, so there's a difference between like writing about what Cotton is saying or doing and then giving Cotton the chance to say, to make that call. I'm not saying I don't have a hard and fast rule about what that difference is or what should be done, but I do think those things are different. And that they do, like, if if we if the argument is that we have to give people a diverse array of opinions, then they have to do that. And instead, I think what they do is they like re- replicate the you know the power structure or the power dynamics that exist in a way that like takes them for granted. And if anything, it's like that's a guy who has all the media he wants. Like he can go on TV whenever he Absolutely. wants. He can pass laws. Like, so why not give an op-ed opportunity to um, someone who's, uh, I don't know, like uh, was a beat was beaten by police. But they do. What? Well, how many have they have? They I mean, I, I mean, look, have you looked looked at the New York Times op-ed page? I mean, there it's 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 basically been a long list of. of was this before editor- or after the con, though? I mean, I, both. I mean, the, the, the New York Times has had no shortage of editorials denouncing police behavior. I mean, I, I, I don't. But I, no, I'm just asking in terms of the if they were from any protesters as opposed to. I, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't say that for sure. Yeah. But clear, but I think overwhelmingly the the, the editorials, they've been, denounced, are, yeah. they've, they've been denouncing. And, and the thing about I don't agree with the argument that we should that anybody should give Tom Cotton an, uh, an editorial because he's a U.S. senator. But the argument, what, what, what is compelling, and I think, and this was in Cotton's editorial, and I think it's true, polls show that 58% of the country is in favor of, was in favor of deploying the military to support the police in the protests. And that included 40% of people who describe themselves as liberals and 37% of people of African-Americans. So, so if you, if, and and again, this is this is the problem, right? Okay, you can you can denounce that point of view. You can you can disagree yeah. with it. You can say that it's dangerous. You can do all those things. But if it becomes a situation where an editor of a newspaper looks at an editorial that he that he or she knows has broad support in the population and ends up making the decision, my job is not going to survive me running right. this running this editorial then when you all you're going to get is an, is a, is a, is what we have been getting in the press which is op-ed pages that basically are a bunch of people who agree with each other right and what is the, that what is the press for if that's if that's the end game yeah i guess the issue is that like well a couple things one is that i think there was someone there was an article on this and and someone said like the 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 staff at the Times got an email that's like the the philosophy of of our of the, of the Times is not changing, so <laughs> that was like a and as I think I said to you, it was going to be a cosmetic, like regardless of your thoughts on the firing of him or on the cotton thing, it was definitely going to be a cosmetic symbolic change, um, because the, the the thing that makes the Times the Times though, right, is is that they are a place that runs Tom Cotton and that has Barry Weiss and has uh, what Brett Stevens on their, on their op- Not for long, uh, I bet. staff writing. Um, so even if they do that, I guess it'll change. 
My point is that whatever that issue is or that tendency is, is not merely in the actual like op-eds written. And I'm also torn because I don't think Barry Weiss should be at the Times. Like, I don't think she, and this is what, it's like, if there were a Palestinian writer who said the things about Jews and or Israelis that she says about Palestinians, like they would not have a chance in hell of having a job there. And I don't know, should a climate change denier like Brett Stevens have be writing op-eds for the New York Times? I mean, he has the right to, and they have the right to hire him, but it's like a pretty like argue against thing. it you know i mean like the, the, what, what's what's different so about you, this so you could argue against it and, and like you're saying you could argue against it and but you shouldn't pressure the times to fire someone if they're if, if they if shitty takes we, we have an at, the, the atmosphere now not just at the times but all across the media is if you do something that your staff if you run a, an opinion that the staff does not agree with you will lose your job. And additionally, you may, you, you may, be, you may be denounced as a racist and, and, and rendered unemployable going forward, which is no kind of way. It, it's completely the opposite of, of how the press traditionally viewed our mission. We, we, we have always thought that getting to the truth and telling the truth is the way to combat untruth yeah. and, and to combat you know, reactionary thinking, wrong thinking. That's... That's how we, we get at it, right? And what we what we what we get now is a is a fear based situation, where we're trying to preempt discussions because we're we're deeming them unclean ahead of time. And right. and again, the the there's a the example of Aaron Mate. Um, it's clearly, it's, yeah. It shows, it shows, and and also the the Hillary thing with the enthusiasm. It shows why it's not, it's never a good idea for the press to get into this game of putting a thumb on the scale, and right. and and trying to decide what are what what is and is not uh, an an appropriate opinion. Like if if the okay if the if the New York Times wants to be a place where the op-ed page has a point of view, then we're we're going back to a different model of journalism, which. It's fine, but they you just mean have a to a particular point of view as opposed because they all have point of views, right? Points of view, the op-eds. But you're saying if they all fit under a certain point of view. Right. If they all fit under a, under a certain point of view and 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 the editor is going to operate under the assumption that, that stepping outside that point of view is right. going to cost his or her job, then that's one way to run an organization. But that is a it's it's a completely radical transformation of what the media has has always been in this country. Um, I, I think it's it's traditionally it's been conservatives and Republicans who have who have pressured people to to eliminate right. certain kinds of thoughts and certain kinds of editorials from from the press. And now, I, you know, I, we're seeing a completely opposite phenomenon. And I think it's also noteworthy that that uh, that people in journalism are piling on each other and nobody's yeah. defending defending their they colleagues because they don't want to get canceled they're afraid and the, and the only people right. who are going to do it who are going to who are going to defend people like lee fong are people who you know who whose jobs don't depend on uh you know on some you know like uh, who, who don't have a salary at stake you know i mean i i think just, i i have an independent source of income so i can say i i i, I don't think that journalists should treat each other that way um but uh you know, it, well, the other thing that happens is that if it becomes a cancelable thing, 
then you wind up, it's like a self, it's, it's kind of a, a distorted, um, it's a kind of distortion of reality because then you only have like right wing people or maybe racist people defending the person. Right. Because they don't, right. So even like if that person, you know, that, so that, that, which suggests that that person is, reinforces that idea and the lack of defense of him or whoever from the left may not, the silence, let's say, the relative silence suggests a like sent, uh, a condemnation that may not exist. It may actually just be a fear of facing consequences. Absolutely, that's what, what's going on. And, and look, in the case of Lee Fong, the, the things that got him in trouble, he ran a video interview of a, a, of a, a protester in, uh, on the West Coast, uh, African-American, a Black Lives Matter supporter who basically said, you know, I, I had a couple of cousins who were murdered and how come black lives only matter when they're taken by white people, right? And so he ran that, that video. Then there were some other things like uh, he, he got in an argument with a, with, a, with a colleague over whether or not Martin Luther King uh, embraced violence, uh, violent protest or not. Um, in another instance, he was criticizing uh, what, do you, what do you describe as attacking immigrant businesses that was the, by protesters? Now it's again this this gets back to like the thing with the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's it's an it's very much in debate even among liberals, yeah. even among people who describe themselves as leftists. Yeah. Whether whether we agree about uh, violent protest, yeah. whether we agree about dis- destruction of property, whether and and so if you're going to end up. If you're going to be risk being right. denounced as racist and, and brought into HR for for some of these thoughts, then all that's going to happen is people are not going to have that discussion. And right. if 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 you if you think that's really the way the press should right. work, I, I, mean, I, I just yeah. don't understand that that instinct. That's that's. I a, was thinking actually, yeah, and it does also prevent or preempt or stifle discussion because I was thinking that the discussion about immigrant-owned businesses like is an important one to have, even if the point and the takeaway is that that's a false dichotomy or it's not, it shouldn't be seen as like, you know, as a Black Lives Matter versus immigrant issue. Um, I do think that that's, I, I do think that, that it, there is a danger in like, in the cancellate, canceling, which prevents, like it would be great if, if, I don't know if he tweeted this or wrote a piece about this, Lee, about the immigrant owned businesses, but like that is something people think and it should be. I mean, and that's just an example. I think you're talking to a more general principle. And for me, I, I, I think that's true. And it's easier for me, I think, for myself and also maybe for others who agree with my politics to remind ourselves of like how even if you are a leftist and even if you don't like certain if you're don't like free speech. Now I do like free speech, but I have to admit emotionally, I'm viscerally sometimes bothered by it, by the results of it. But just like with the Palestinian issue, like if you support censorship, I mean, you could call it censorship, but it's not formal censorship. Like it's an important reminder that if you support censorship, you're ultimately punishing the people who you claim to want to uplift. Like, so just pausing the principled argument, which you definitely laid out well. Um, uh, I, I just think it's an important like gateway argument to to reach certain people because it gets them to see how it affects their own 
like issues or their, their their own causes that they for which they advocate. So I, and I do think that like there's an important opportunity to discuss these things. Well, right. And again, again, all, all that ends up happening in this situation is is that you get a whole community of people who are afraid to use certain language and it, and it, re, and it results in a kind of a corruption of the mission of the press. Right. Like, so, so on the, on that note, let's, let's talk to somebody who's, who's likely to have thoughts on both sides of this issue. So we are talking to um, congressional candidate Shahid Buttar, who is a uh, legal, who's a lawyer, um, major uh, civil rights, uh, civil liberties, free speech, um, I don't know what's called like tech online tech companies, tech tech consolidation, tech bros, anti tech bros um, lawyer, and uh, also uh, yeah, someone who yelled at Clapper at James Clapper during a hearing, right. and a DJ and poet, and running against Nancy Pelosi, and a rejecter of politics by photo ops. And in fact, we should talk to him about Nancy's greatest hits. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, we'll uh, let's look and forward to that interview. And his name again is, is Shahid Buttar, and it's pronounced like this, guys. Shahid, so ah, the accent's on the ah, and Buttar, the accent's on the ooh. All right. Well, uh, let's 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 uh, hear what he has to uh, what, what Shahid has to say, and uh, we'll talk to him now. Great. Welcome back. So excited to be talking to Shahid Buttar once again. Um, he, as people know, is running against Nancy Pelosi, and he's a Renaissance man, a poet, a DJ, a lo- lawyer, an activist, an organizer, and also he plays a really important role in um, Useful Idiots because he he serves as a voice of reason who uh, convinces Matt that I'm right on things like, <laughs> on, on, is, on issues like felony murder, which makes his um, appearance on the show so much more than just about politics and about his very important run against Pelosi, but also about, you know, from thinking globally, acting locally. Right. And it yeah. makes makes his appearances on this show probably increasingly rare, I would say, going forward. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm oh, sorry. I thought you were saying because we were going to agree more, you and I, Matt. No, 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 no. no, no, no. You're, Matt is being self-deprecating. I thought yeah. you were saying because Pelosi was going to intervene and keep me off your program. Oh, well, that, oh, that, yeah, that, that could easily happen, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we should start there with we'll, yeah. a couple of things. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who obviously you're running against, one of one of the favorite subjects of the show, uh, she's had a series of incidents that uh, she's, she's becoming famous for the sort of performative brand of politics where she tears something up. This week it was the kneeling in the African uh, kinte cloth scarf. I actually have the, can I ask the question, Matt? Sure, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so um, not to put you too much, not to put you in the hot seat right away, but what, okay. uh, as a member of Congress, what are the three acts of performative, substance-free political theater you commit to taking <laughs> within, <laughs> within your, within the first three months? Well, I will, uh, uh, <clears throat> hmm. Most of what I anticipate is actually very substantive. So, but if I were to do something meaningless, you know, I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to rip up a president's speech. Uh, I'm happy to point at him across the table and I'm very happy to wear a bright red coat and walk out of a meeting and very sternly put on sunglasses. <laughs> okay, good. That should be your next campaign video. Oh, oh my God. God. 
That would be really good. We'll What's done. in your refrigerator? If we were going to open up your refrigerator right now, and, and actually your freezer. A lot of leftovers. Yeah, a lot of leftovers. Beans, yeah. Right. yeah, I make lentils a lot. Yeah, I, I can uh. get some chicken curry I made the other night. It turns out I, I, I started experimenting with some dishes that I ate growing up like at home that my mom used to make when she was still with us. And I made this chicken curry a few weeks ago that frankly, I was wildly gesticulating. It tasted so good. It's, it's wow. a really profound blessing when you can make food that you like. So the, wow. most of my, my fridge is leftovers. Your inner Bernie came out. Gesticulating. <laughs> nice. speaking, of, speaking of that, what's, uh, your campaign has really, in a lot of ways, become almost like a proxy movement for, for people who were following Bernie's campaign. I mean, what, what have you seen with your campaign since Bernie dropped out of the race? It's been an incredible, really humbling experience, you know, in the wake of Bernie suspending his campaign. And just to be clear, I wish he was still in the race because yeah. we need his voice now more than ever. Uh, but in the week since he suspended his campaign, thousands of people around the country have flocked to ours. And I think people recognize that at the same time that the presidential contest might not offer our movement an opportunity to vindicate our principles, there are still races right. in the country that do offer our movement a chance to vindicate our principles. One of those is ours. I'm also very excited about Charles Booker's uh, campaign to challenge Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. I think that's another race that presents the same kind of opportunities for us to not just vote for any blue, you know, some conservative corporate Democrat, but actually to put people in office who care about justice, who've been showing up on the front lines long before we ran for office. Uh, and I think right. that's one of the, you know, you mentioned the performative brand of so-called resistance that Pelosi has become famous for. I think the contrast between people like Charles and I, uh, you know, people who are putting our communities in first instead of our careers, and then contrasting right. that with incumbents who for decades have put their careers first. You know, right. you mentioned the stunt this week with the kneeling in Congress and the Kente cloth and the introduction of the Justice and Policing Act. The Justice and Policing Act reprises movement demands from 10 years ago. And it falls far short of the movement's demands today. And you know, the difference between Pelosi and I is that she's showing up a decade later to propose things that I've been in the streets for 10 years trying to force Congress to adopt. And we can have voices that show up 10 years late with you know, half of what we're asking for, or we right. can support voices and put them in office who have stood with and will stand with our community. So I'm excited to be that voice. What, what, where, where does that act fall short, short as, far, as far as you're concerned? There's a whole bunch of areas I would describe it both as under-inclusive and actually actively harmful. So I wanna particularly just take a, a, a swipe at police body cameras because one of the measures in the Justice and Policing Act is the national expansion of police body cameras. And I've said for five years, I wrote early on in the Movement for Black Lives that people in the movement who support police body cameras don't entirely understand what they're asking for. And it's not good. Just to be clear here, police body cameras represent a new surveillance vector. There are almost, almost a million police officers in the United States. You put a body camera on every one of them and the degree to which we as a people are being watched just went up several more notches. Now there's a further problem here and, and the big one is that body cameras don't ensure accountability. They can't in fact ensure accountability. They occasionally ensure accountability in limited instances but the problem is precisely the body cameras only give you visibility into particular incidents, not patterns and practices. And even those particular incidents are depicted from a particular perspective, namely the police officers. So you don't see what the cop's doing. 
And there's a, there's a big difference here between dash cams yeah, exactly. and body cams for exactly that reason. A dash cam on a car puts the officer's con actions in context. You can see them. A dash cam footage is helpful. Body camera footage is much less so. Um, the further thing I'd say here is that body camera footage can be used as evidence in criminal trials to put people behind bars. And they also can be used in court to justify the escalation of force by law enforcement officers, which is to say body camera footage will be used against us routinely. And it will very rarely be used to vindicate anyone's rights. And, and it's just another example of corporate Democrats being actively unhelpful. Uh, there have been proposals for over a decade to do things like demilitarizing police, which the bill thankfully would do. But it doesn't demilitarize our borders, as I proposed two years ago. It doesn't ensure that past criminal history can't be used as a means or a reason to deny someone housing benefits or a job. That's something that I proposed two years ago. Uh, ending qualified immunity is a super important step. I'm glad to see Ilhan Omar back it. Uh, and I'm glad to see Nancy Pelosi at least nodding to it. It is striking that it's 2020 and they only just got there now. We've been calling for this since the mid-2010s, even under the Obama administration. And so to see Democratic leaders not only showing up late, but actively promoting unhelpful measures while then engaging in this empty performative stunt, while even worse, engaging in cultural appropriation while doing it, Right. I mean, it's just layers upon layers of offensiveness. And, you know, the very next day, Pelosi and Schumer were reported in The Hill to have yeah. resisted and called against calls to defund the police. So how are you going to kneel in Congress wearing African royal garb to co-opt a movement and then the very next day come out and oppose the movement's central demand? That's that's not even pandering. Well, that, it makes total sense. I, that's the point of it. Right. Indeed. To be fair, there, that's an effective, well thought out um co-opting uh, i mean aren't aren't not to put you on the spot but aren't you venturing into areas where there isn't a unanimity of, of, of thought in the within the movement about things like uh surveillance uh i mean body cams uh not everybody i, I would imagine I, I agree with you but yeah. but but isn't there a controversy there i mean if we, if we talk about how how trends are moving towards for instance surveillance on the internet yeah. Um, you know, and you've, you've been an important voice on there. Uh, actually, if you could talk about that, could you tell us a little bit about the Earn It Act and what's going on there on that frontier? Can I yeah, ask one question before that's related to the body cam specifically? Yeah. If body cam is a, vi is a, um, a surveillance vector, um, I understand the difference between body cams and dash cams, but is dash cams, are dash cams not also as problematic on a surveillance level? They are surveillance vectors, but they're at least surveillance vectors that have proven more useful in ensuring police okay, accountability exactly, right. in the limited instance that they've right. become available. So yeah, you're absolutely right at the general level. They're, they're subject to the very same criticism. But unlike body cameras, we've seen any number of cases where dash cam footage has exposed a police officer's criminal behavior. And body cameras don't, because even if a police officer is doing something criminal, you're not going to see it from their body. Right. So it's like a cost benefit. It's like more surveillance without any benefit for police accountability. Whereas dash cameras give us right. somewhat yeah. more surveillance so, yeah. but with a lot more accountability. And to Matt's question about the Earned Act, you know, this is a takes a second to set up. So there's a provision in the law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It is the cornerstone of the contemporary internet. It's the law that allows major internet platforms or any internet platform to post user-generated speech without suffering legal liability for the speech of the user. 
right? So it means that if you use Facebook, let's say you post something on Facebook that in itself, let's say it's a threat, and to that extent it constitutes a crime. The point of this law is that it's your crime, not Facebook's. So the Earn It Act aims to invert that, to make platforms responsible for user speech in order to incentivize the platforms to censor their users according to government demands. And that is incredibly dangerous. The Earn It Act would subvert free speech online. And because it would subvert free speech, we have to connect it to democracy. People usually think of any number of surveillance powers or other security theater programs, exactly that, in security terms. But the Earn It Act doesn't ensure in any way <clears throat> security. What the Earn It Act does is place users at the mercy of the corporate platforms that we use. And anyone who's ever used a major internet company's platform knows that the platforms aren't necessarily on our team, right? I mean, it's, it, it's Kafka. It's really difficult to get resolution. I mean, I actually had an interview taken down by YouTube about two months ago. An independent mm -hmm. journalist was interviewing me, talking about, of all things, just to make this layers upon layers of disturbing, the failures of corporate media to cover at the time the expansion and, and resuscitation of the Patriot Act with Nancy Pelosi's support. Wow. And within minutes of that interview posting to YouTube, it was taken down. And because he didn't record a local copy of it, it was oh, basically no. deleted. We did it. We did the interview again. And it, you always you got know. to download it. Listeners, make sure you download your, your YouTube videos. Seriously, especially because this will happen. It's the thing. Um, it's yeah. really important. Yeah, right away. Yeah. Why <laughs> did it? What was the justification for taking it down? They or don't they tell not you. provide one. Yeah, that's, that's exactly really part of the problem. Especially right? sketchy part. Yeah. Isn't it? It's like not even due process. I mean, I know that's not tech, but it's not the principle. Like no, you're on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely the principle. Well, when I was at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of our projects there was the development of the Santa Clara principles. And they're a set of consensus recommendations for tech companies to guide their content moderation of user speech. And one of the critical principles in the Santa Clara principles is due process. The idea that if you're going to take down speech, tell the person who posted right. it why right. and give them some measure or method to remedy the problem. And right. that's exactly Trans what right. doesn't happen now. Yeah, I mean, there's no transparency. I mean, again, this is something that I've, that's always kind of troubled me, you know, from from the the reporter's point of view, right? The old system was we were we were relatively protected in what we reported, uh, so long as we stayed away, we, we adhered to liable laws, and if there was an issue, we knew it was going to be adjudicated in an open court. There was a process. We knew what we were accused of. We we knew what the evidence was. Uh, isn't that kind of the the issue with this, these, these new approaches to regulating content is that you, you, you may not even know what the issue is. And if you do know, even if you do know, there isn't really a forum necessarily to argue your case uh, or, 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 or win. Uh, you know, it, the, really the issue is who do you know? Who do you know at the company, or what? What, what are their yeah, exactly attitudes? Exactly right. That's exactly right, and it's, it's ironic because if you know people at the company, you usually can get resolution to these problems. Usually, it's not an act of some human being. Like when our when our YouTube interview went down, I don't think it was someone saying, "Oh, screw that guy. I don't like what he's saying. I'm going to take his video down." It's censorship by algorithm. Right. It's a right. computer somewhere who said, oh, he said a term that we don't like. Oh, some record company copyrighted that term. Oh, somebody somewhere said we can't talk about that. And so it's censorship by algorithm. Right. And that's even more dangerous. Now we're very squarely into Kafka's world where real life events are happening and no one knows why. And we can't trace it back. It's like Kafka meets Elon Musk. 
Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. That is yeah. a, that was a fascinating interaction or combination. I was remixing them yeah. in my mind. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. a hysterical result. That's a good mind. novel. That we could, you, you could make a yeah. really interesting novel that, that way. Anyway. Randomness yeah. on Mars. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you, the thing is, you would never get to Mars. Right. right? right. It, would be, it would be like the cat, like you would never actually get to the end of them anyway. Right. No, it would be um, arbitrariness on a roadster slowly circling the planet in, you know, a, a uh, you know, navel gazing orbit. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but pe people have pretty strong feelings about speech on the internet and they're yeah. deeply concerned about hate speech. They're deeply, deeply concerned about threats. Uh, so what, what is the ideal way to deal with all of these things? Um, given that there's, I mean, I, I, I talked to somebody once at Facebook who basically said, look, we're dealing with billions of pieces of content a day. There's no way to do it by, with human beings. Yeah. Um, there, there has to be an automated algorithmic way to approach this. Otherwise, we just physically can't do it. So what's, what's the right way to handle it? Well, content moderation shouldn't be something that the companies are doing. That's why CDA 230 was so important. Because mm -hmm. the, the legal arrangement that the Earn It Act threatens to throw out the window ensures that the companies don't have to waste their time moderating user content. It is the imposition of governments to take down user-generated speech that puts us in this mess. You know, some of the very, you know, some of the very first videos that were taken down from YouTube for being too violent were incidents of police violence. Right. that were recorded and captured, you know, and so the, the algorithms, uh, it, not only are they over-inclusive, but the core things that they removed, the very first things they started removing, were the kind of content that we all desperately need to see. And so I reject corporate content moderation as a thing that needs to happen at all. And the fact that the policymakers, you know, Kamala Harris comes to mind here, she brags about limiting CDA 230 in the context of a law, SESTA and FOSTA, that particularly dialed up the physical risks confronting health right. workers uh, and sex, sex, workers, sex workers. And putting sex workers at risk of street violence by denying them opportunities to vet clients online. And the idea that we're going to put sex workers at risk and then brag about supposedly protecting them, right. which is what Kamala Harris does, even in the midst of suppressing free speech online, it's, it's just exactly what we've come to expect from corporate Democrats, you know, the, the vast gulf between the rhetoric and the reality. And in terms of what we should be doing, we should be respecting user-generated speech. And the solution that our country has always adopted in the past has been that unless it's a, you know, an incitement to violence. Imminent, a, right? Right, exactly. I mean, you, you have to get into the point where the words themselves convey harm to get past the First Amendment protection. But we've, we've made a choice in our founding documents to commit ourselves to speech as a free principle. And corporate content moderation flies in the face of it. It's so how, incompatible with our norms. So how does one, like, okay, let's say that there's, that we totally agree on that, or I totally agree on that. What, um, what happens with the actual hate speech, which I realize is, uh, or incitement, sorry, the incitement to violence, because I realize that, that the ratio of that to other kinds of speech, including, as you pointed out, precisely documentation of the violence that there needs to be accountability around, um, obviously that's a much smaller, the ratio of that to the other thing is very low, but what is to be done about the occasions where there is someone saying meet let's meet on this corner and like you know attack the man who in the turban who works there right but Whatever, you kind of like you pressed on it before with process due process at the moment there is no process that's one of the problems if a company's going to take down content 
if there's notice to the user and some mechanism through which they can seek the vindication of whatever they were trying to like or to get their post back up for instance that would make sense we have mechanisms for this in our society they're called courts we don't have analogs in the companies now our courts are also co-opted and you know by the right wing and there's all kinds of problems here i would just briefly note here that i have a proposal to fix that uh not so much the corporate platforms but in the courts arena i want to end judicial life tenure to restore judicial independence by imposing 18-year staggered terms, particularly for Supreme Court justices. And I think that will do a lot to make our courts reliable, impartial bodies that we can look to for meaningful, fair resolution of these questions. The problem at the companies is we have nothing like it, but we could, right? I mean, the companies, particularly Facebook comes to mind as a mega corporation. corporation Matt mentioned the person at the company who we spoke to. I'd have more sympathy with that argument coming from a small startup because the argument there would be is we don't have resources. No one at Facebook can plausibly say we okay, don't right. have the resources. They can hire their way out of this problem. Right. They can hire 10,000 content sure, right, right. to have individual discussions with the people whose content they're right. taking down. The fact that they don't means Zuckerberg doesn't want to pay for it. Right, 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 right mm-hmm. yeah. And so it's like the, in an ideal world, you would have maybe the algorithm that looks for these certain words. Then you have the person looking at it and distinguishing between here is a cop um, attacking a man in a turban versus I want you to join me in two hours to attack this man in a turban. Yes, that's a perfect example. And the, yeah. I, the importance of human review to right. validate algorithmic decision-making and the opportunity for impacted individuals to invite review and to have a say in the process. That's what due process ultimately means. I mean, due process has a legal meaning, but what it's supposed to mean is fairness. If something happens to you, you're supposed to know what happened and have a chance to fix it. That's not rocket science. That's just basic decency. Basically, due process is the recognition in the law that we used to have for decency. And it's exactly what we've lost today. As long as we're mentioning due process, it's important to note some people who didn't get it, including George Floyd, including Eric Garner, including Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor. Every time we say their names, every single one of those people was denied not only their life, but particularly this principle this right that we are all constitutionally uh, enshrined. We all have a right to due process. And, and, and it's important to recognize how it's implicated, not just in the context of arbitrary corporate content moderation online, but in these very real, meaningful life and death situations offline. You know, a, a cop's knee on your neck is a deprivation of due process, even far worse, frankly, than the arbitrary decisions of Mark Zuckerberg destroying our democracy. Well, you know, on the policing level, as, a, as an attorney, what wasn't that, in, in, at least in some part, uh, part, part of growing out of a decision to um, strip people of due process and, and put a lot of these decisions uh, in the mind of the police officer, right? So you have Ohio v. Terry, which basically says that police may stop, search somebody, pat them down, as long as they have an articulable suspicion that a crime is about to be about to occur. So you don't have to uh, adjudicate probable cause at all anymore right. with, modern, with modern policing. Um, it is, is not the same principle, right? Like you, you're, you're removing a process that used to have to exist. Absolutely. Uh, Every time somebody dies at the hand of a cop, the cop is making themselves the police officer, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And that's exactly what you're describing. And the law has been contorted repeatedly with the support of corporate Democrats to make police officers more arbitrarily powerful and to deny civil rights to communities. 
uh, and you know the the crime bill <clears throat> that has gotten a lot of attention in the last several weeks in the 90s that played a very key role here the truth and sentencing act had a really crucial role to play here the <clears throat> and, and not just acts of congress acts by the courts as well the creation of the qualified immunity doctrine in the 1960s was basically an open invitation to cops to do what you want and until you know the controlling jurisdiction encounters an exactly similar case you pretty much can do anything you want to someone Uh, And and that's the state of the law as it stands right now. And, you know, I would, another thing I'd say here is that each of the problems that the movement for black lives has made front and center in the last week, none of these are new. Every single one of these problems is decades old. And I see members of Congress who've been in office for decades now showing up, many of them later in life saying, oh no, we figured it out now. Now we understand. And I don't buy it. You know, if, if Nancy Pelosi wanted to be uh, supportive of black Americans. She could have supported the end racial profiling act when it was passed, when it was introduced in Congress 20 years ago, 20 years ago, the end racial profiling act was introduced in Congress and corporate Democrats and Republicans alike have ignored it that entire time. I was in a meeting with the house judiciary committee leadership in 2010, early in the Obama administration. And when I was leading a civil rights organization at the time, and I asked, when are you going to, reintroduce ERPA, the End Racial Profiling Act. To this point, it had been almost 10 years that it had been serially introduced in every session of Congress. It very nearly passed Congress in 2001 with the support of the Bush administration. Figure that out. And it's never been seen since. And I asked, this was John Conyers' staff. He was still with us at the time. And his, uh, his staffer said in the meeting, it hasn't yet been introduced. We are waiting for the administration's support. And the Obama administration was in office for eight years and it never came. And now corporate Democrats say, oh, now they're down for fixing police abuses. You know, I I don't buy it for a second, especially when their bill doesn't do the things that communities have been clamoring for, like defunding police departments and does things like expanding body cameras that actively place us at risk. This is a signal to me of a leadership that remains intransigently committed to power and not to our communities. What what about... What about broken windows policing and, and uh, you know, stop and frisk? Uh, um, a lot of these strategies were uh, explicitly supported by Democrats for years and years and years. I mean, we saw some of the, some of the more amazing examples of the overreach were, you know, by Democrats. I think, you know, Martin O'Malley, you know, had that one year in Baltimore where they arrested 100,000 people and there are only 640,000 people in the city. Um, I, is, does there need to be a rethink of these high engagement police strategies that Absolutely. have been that have been gospel for a long time? No question. Absolutely. And and to you know look back at the origin of broken windows policing, you know, a lot of that theory came out of New York. And I think about Rudy yeah. Giuliani and I particularly think about Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. And it's interesting that a racist Republican mayor who promoted so many of these vicious programs was openly embraced by the democratic leadership to be the president of the United States. And that to me is part and parcel of the problem. And we have Democrats embracing even unrepentant GOP figures who unapologetically, you know, well, I guess to his credit, I suppose Bloomberg eventually apologized, but an apology after years of yeah, it was a pretty, pretty bad one too. Right. I mean, it's yeah. not only is it bad, but it's so cravenly convenient. Too. Right. 
Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't accept convenient apologies. I mean, that yeah. Nancy Pelosi kneeling on the, in Congress after 30 years of viciously assaulting black communities. Similarly, I think I have a similar feeling towards, but you know, broken windows policing is to privilege order above human dignity. And, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. Police should be to the extent we have any role for any kind of law enforcement, their role should be strictly limited to preventing violence and keeping people safe not protecting property, not, uh, you know, policing quality of life or, you know, what people like broken windows policing is the idea that you should prosecute even minor infractions to the most vicious degree possible, because according to the proponents of broken windows policing, if they catch you, you know, urinating in a public park, you know, bust you now so that you don't murder someone next week. Yeah. Well, well another interesting principle of broken windows is that that I actually think is is ha it's based on parts of it are makes sense but they're totally like perverted because one of the principles right is like if you see a broken window right that's what comes from that like a broken window a car window or i don't know if it's what you want zimbardo but, yeah so right if you see that then you are going to be more likely to like destroy your community or property but of course right. even if that's true even if they're like physical evidence of of destruction or lack of upkeep uh, encourages some kind of behavior or neglect, you don't fix that through policing. Like right. there are so many community ways to, there's so many things you could fund ranging from education to healthcare to um, like garden, you know, like like environmental things that actually would address that without creating more of the very thing that you're trying to root out. Yes, and that's, that's precisely what our communities have been clamoring for, for years, are real solutions to our needs. Right. And one of the challenges and like so many things to say here, but one of the challenges that we encounter in in communities that are over policed is the fact that you know there aren't as many economic opportunities in many of right. these neighborhoods yeah. as there are in others. So what could we do? We could inject stimulus into those neighborhoods. But what have we done instead? We've doubled down on policing instead. Uh, another piece to note here, the sources and the origins of militarized policing in the United States have generally gone unnoticed, even in the last few weeks in the face of the movement's uprising. People forget, and we might have even talked about this the last time I was on your show, but the role of the CIA in sparking a domestic drug oh, trade. Really? Oh, wow. We didn't Gary Webb is, yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating San thing. San Jose Mercury News, yeah. yeah. Matt remembers, yeah. So Gary Webb, do you want to tell the story of Gary Webb? No, no, you go ahead, yeah. <laughs> so Gary Webb, investigative reporter at the San Jose Mercury News, he writes a book, Dark Alliance, and, his, and he writes this incendiary series of reports that during his life, are repudiated by his employers and the publications he works for. He's posthumously vindicated when the CIA inspector general admits in the late 90s that everything he said was true. And what Gary Webb documented before dying of a suicide involving two gunshot wounds to the head. I mean, I think I, most people, will, if they're going to kill themselves, will shoot themselves twice. I mean, how yeah. else are you going to do it? Especially people with the work ethic like Gary Webb. <laughs> God. It's such a, I mean, I can't even, I, I, mean, know, I did just so laugh deep, about it. It's yeah. horrifying. Because well, what we he, laugh instead of crying, because, yeah. It is really horrifying to consider yeah. what he uncovered. And it was a conspiracy to the highest levels of our government in which the CIA basically ran crack cocaine into LA and Miami to fund its rogue human rights abuses and foreign policy in other countries. And the Iran-Contra scandal that we grappled with was mostly focused on the international aspect, right. but no one's grappled with the domestic aspect. Millions of Americans have been imprisoned in the last 20, 30 years for participating in an underground economy that the CIA created and has never been held accountable for. 
ever, not once in any way, no person, no budget penalty. And in the years since then, the agency has compounded that era of human rights violations with more, not just torturing and murdering and raping detainees, not just engineering new forms of human rights abuses and remote assassinations of people, including U.S. citizens, halfway around the world without charge or trial, despite efforts by their families to vindicate their rights. I mean, it's, it's heinous what the agency has gone on to do. But I just want to put a pin, particularly in the CIA's role in paramilitarizing police. U.S. cops were dying at the hands of narco-traffickers funded, trained, and equipped by the CIA, and instead of anyone at the agency playing a penalty, we jailed two and a half million black people instead. Amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. well, just a, it's it's amazing also that the CIA as as like you know we we often comment on this. They're so venerated by the MIC resistance as these protectors of democracy, um, our only chance against Trump. And, um, you know, Ronald Reagan is now praised by by people in the resistance. And it's just um, a reminder of how how like absolutely not to be corny, but it is one of the reminders of how important history is in in, like determining the present. To speak on that very directly too. I mean, another aspect of this history, I, I glossed over this because I mentioned how we dealt with the international aspects of the CIA's repeated interventions in Latin America. Only it turns out we didn't. I mean, we knew about them as a historical matter, but very much to your point, there have been three, at least three, arguably four, right-wing coups in Latin America in the last two years. Brazil, two in Venezuela, and one in Bolivia. Every single one of them fits a longstanding CIA pattern. Bolsonaro, the beneficiary of the coup in Brazil, spoke at the CIA headquarters. And they don't just invite any random person to come. It's not like you can walk up to the CIA headquarters and say, hey, I want to give a speech, right? Uh, What does that say to you? To me, it says a lot of circumstantial things that should be very indicative of suspicion that no one in Congress has done anything about. And, And it is striking to me that not only has the CIA engaged in dozens of military interventions to topple democratically elected governments in the past in order to extract resources for the corporate war machine, but at the moment there is an active ecocide happening in Bolivia and Brazil. We're burning the Amazon, they're murdering indigenous leaders, and they seem to have done it, at least with tacit, if not active CIA support. And, you know, put this put this in the context of the recent coup, you know, the, the, the latest one in Venezuela that was spoiled, the one that was just flatly incompetent where the, you know. Oh, the with the guy, oh, with the, uh, remember Matt, we call them OK Jordan. That's our Right, team yes, for, yeah, for exactly. Canadians with masculinity issues, sorry. Tweeting yeah. about his invasion plans. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, there's your OPSEC for you. But but that's the character. I mean, if that's, if that's the kind of thing that we've been willing to put resources into and support, just imagine what else happens that doesn't get reported. And, I, and I've said before, and I'll say again, this president's worst acts we don't even know about totally that. yeah the media of course is totally complicit in the in the coups in bolivia they're just now finally admitting that they like peddled lies and you know people all these people who are wringing their hands oh i don't know it's complicated by evo morales when it actually wasn't complicated, Not complicated and the other thing that is worth noting i think is how much the term conspiracy theorist has been weaponized so that the things that you said that are totally true and documented you will be smeared as a conspiracy theorist um and compared to donald trump and there's a lot of that like the equating of people who talk about things that are just under exposed um equating that with right wing uh you know like alex jones stuff well i mean i guess the, the question i had was everybody in america right now is having this massive rethink of uh how we do policing in this country why don't we also have a rethink of 
the whole democracy promotion concept, which is is basically an archetype that we promote everywhere where the United States has a presence all around the world. We uh, heavily fund, uh, we usually place a bet on some typically anti-democratic force in some country. We yep. back them with military support, with money, with, uh, you know, intellectual support from think tanks. Intelligence this, training. Intelligence training, all these things. I mean, this is, it's as big uh, an issue as policing and certainly has a footprint that's around the world much bigger. Shouldn't that, shouldn't this be something people are discussing also? Absolutely. In fact, and we are very much discussing it. You know, we've said defund the police and next the Pentagon. The Pentagon and police are very analogous functions. We call the Pentagon the Department of Defense, just like we lie about police officers protecting and serving. Police officers protect and serve as much as the Pentagon defends us, which is to say it's not about defense and it's not about protecting or serving. This is about extending U.S. economic and effectively imperial interests into other countries. We have U.S. military bases around the world in almost 100 countries, and they tell us we don't have money for Medicare for all? Something here doesn't add up. And I think if anybody is independent enough of the corporate political parties to look at that through a prism of what makes common sense, of course we have the money for Medicare for all. Corporate Democrats and Republicans would simply rather waste it on missiles, bombs, and aircraft carriers. And I'm pretty sure that the American people, particularly in the age of a contagious pandemic, when hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying alone, struggling for breath, that we need doctors and medicine and PPE more than we need aircraft carriers. And, and that is a failure of not just the Republicans, but the corporate Democrats too. And this elevation of security to obscure and 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 preclude the satisfaction of our other needs is not just a disqualification of their political leadership, but I'm going to go back to Katie's point about history here. None of this is new. We were warned about this in no uncertain terms on national television by a sitting U.S. president in 1961. Dwight Eisenhower told us explicitly, I had to create this this complicated system of industries to support the military in order to fight the Nazis, and it is coming for your rights. He said it. He said it will destroy democracy in America unless you are knowledgeable and alert. And in the years since then, we haven't been knowledgeable. Our institutions have been can, done everything they can to keep us in the dark, and we we haven't been alert. You know, we sing anthems at baseball games when they used to happen before the pandemic about living in a land of the free and a home of the brave. A land of the free is not incarcerated to a greater extent than any population in the history of humankind. And a brave people doesn't accept lawmakers who pass laws like this that drive us into prisons by the millions. Um, what one his, part of history that is new is the coronavirus though. What, what, what are some of the civil liberties challenges of this situation? Uh, because there, obviously there's a lot of draconian measures that have been instituted. We have emergency powers invoked, which always raise questions. Are there, are, are there things that you're concerned about? Uh, are there things that you would do differently? Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for raising it. Civil liberties issues in the abstract, I think, are very pernicious. And when they get coupled with the pandemic, one of the things that's really disturbing is the willingness of people to accept restrictive measures that they wouldn't otherwise. In one of these, I've, I've, I've seen... Uh, in some places, more frankly responding to the last week's events with the police uprising than particularly the pandemic, but the mandatory 
um, stay at home orders. You know, it's one thing to shelter in place and to have the option to go to the grocery store if you need to. It's a different thing with a curfew, which says it's enforced by police if you leave your house. And, and I'd note that the curfews haven't been so much pandemic related. They've been much more responding to the uprising. But a curfew, just to be explicit about it, is effectively martial law. I wrote an article saying that in 2015 after the Freddie Gray uh, murder in Baltimore when Baltimore imposed a curfew. And you know, the title of the article is, don't call it a curfew. <laughs> this right. is martial law. This, and I, I, I tell often, I have a chance to speak at colleges and law schools, and I, I try sometimes to break up the doom and gloom that I spread with a little bit of levity. And one of my laugh lines has been, we can ensure perfect security. It's not that hard. We can just lock everyone in their homes. <laughs> and then I say, but we're a free society. We made a commitment not to do that until now. I mean, it's supposed to be a laugh line, not actually... A prescription right. or, we've or been... description indeed right uh you know that's that's one example of, of of a civil liberty problem that the current context presents another one i'd say is the combination the remixing let's say of contact tracing as a goal and phone-based um location tracking so several companies have tried to engineer these kinds of tools that and i understand they haven't been terribly reliable in practice because of the way that they um, you know, uh, based their geographic telemetry. But the idea here is to track location over time, to then uh, retrospectively review the records as people get diagnosed with COVID, to then alert people who might have been near them that, hey, you might have been potentially exposed, you should get tested, you might want to self-isolate. In theory, that's great. Uh, and the problem here is precisely the, the same, it's many of the same problems that emerge in other contexts. It's the, uh, the inability of people, for instance, to opt out. It's the uh, lack of transparency into the algorithms themselves such that people can actually test whether or not it works, right? Is this, is this platform doing the thing or not? Uh, to step back, this is a little abstract relative to the immediate conversation, but I do want to make this point because it cuts across so many contexts. From pharmaceuticals to tobacco to climate chaos, we have been told for decades in any number of contexts that science tells us something is safe. When the so-called science is produced by a company, if it's produced by a company, it's not science. The scientific method is grounded on transparency and replication. Corporate research is based on corporate secrets. Secrecy and the scientific method don't go together. When they were peddling thalidomide, when they were peddling Oxycontin, when they were telling us that smoking is good for you, when they told us that in any one of these contexts, we can't trust corporate pseudoscience. Yeah, that's a perfect example. But I mean, isn't that one of the major, I mean, for, for me, this has been uh, with the way that content moderation has taken place during, during the, this crisis, because we're being told that we, we can't have any kind of speech that crosses certain um, uh, orthodoxies that have been pronounced by certain bodies, whether it's a WHO or whatever, yeah. but experts are wrong and we have to question assumptions all the time. Don't mean it's particularly when they, when they come from corporations, but um, isn't that one of the purposes of free speech is to help us sort those things out? Yeah, the idea in our constitutional history is that the recipe to bad speech is more speech, and then people can figure out what the truth is, and, and that's, that's our constitutional commitment. Um, and, 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 you know, when you mentioned the pandemic-related vectors of corporate content moderation, that I think is, is particularly why the interview that I did with Walker Bragman, the one that YouTube took down, I think that's why they took it down, because we were discussing the CARES Act and the response by Congress to the pandemic. And hmm. that might have been enough to trigger some algorithm saying, hey, you know, this is, we can't have this online. Maybe this will get canceled. 
Matt and I met <laughs> As you said Ragman. that, I thought exactly that. That's the first thing I was thinking as you raised it. I was like, oh, okay, here we go again. I Matt, trust that you all are recording locally. Yeah, we are. Matt and I met through Walker Bragman, so it would be uh, very auspicious if it did, inauspicious if it got taken down. But uh-huh, Right. Uh-huh. So uh, look, going forward, what's you're in, the, you're in the middle of a campaign. What's happening with the campaign and uh, – do you think you're going to end up having a debate? Like what, what's going to, what's going to go on in the summer? How, also, how is the, how has the coronavirus affected your ability to campaign? Oh, so maybe I'll take that in reverse order, starting with the virus. <clears throat> when the pandemic first hit, it was just in the immediate wake of the primary that I was grateful to have won in March. I was one of the two winners of the jungle primary here in the 12th congressional district. So I am the first Democrat in 30 years to ever face Nancy Pelosi in a November election. And I'm wow. very eager to make it her last. Uh, we got 33,000 votes in March, and uh, we have still five months left before the election. We have a lot of ground we need to cover, but we're also moving faster and faster every day. You asked about the latest news on the campaign, and we mentioned you know people flocking to it in the wake of Bernie suspending his efforts. Uh, I've been incredibly humbled by all the momentum recently. In the months of April and May alone, we raised almost a quarter million dollars. Uh, We're about to break. We're on the cusp of surpassing $1 million raised on our campaign with still another five months remaining. Uh, We're racking up endorsements. The most recent prolific endorser to uh, join their ranks is Marianne Williamson. Uh, She's the third presidential candidate to endorse us, in addition to Mm -hmm. Mike Gravel and Lawrence Lessig. And I'm grateful Mm -hmm. for all of their support. Uh, we've also been endorsed by a number of Bernie surrogates. Dr. Cornell West, who's very much in the news today, is one of uh, the endorsers of whom I'm most proud, uh, as well as Linda Sarsour, uh, Ramesh Srinivasa, and others. Um, so even local figures here in San Francisco are increasingly rallying around us. Matt Gonzalez, the former president of our board of supervisors, Eric Marr, wow. who used to sit on the board, Vina Duval, who's a labor law professor at the University of California at Hastings. So all that is uh, reflections of the momentum. I'm especially grateful to have hired not quite half a dozen, but several members of Bernie's 2020 team, including three organizers, senior member of his fundraising team, and a major state data director. And between that expansion and capacity in the campaign staff, the inundation of support that we've been getting from around the city and even across the country, and the press attention, you know, in addition to this opportunity to speak with you all, I'm really grateful just in the last week alone uh, to have been quoted by CBS, USA Today, uh, you know, and the word is getting out that we don't have to settle for this co-opted corporate leadership anymore. Hmm. What, just the last thing for me is, um, what is the future of the Sanders-style movement now that he's, his campaign is no longer... I mean, for so long, that was the organizing principle of, uh, or, or the organizing uh, sort of news narrative that kept people coming to to uh together now that he's kind of stepped off the scene and probably won't be running for anything uh in in the future where does the movement go from here and are there any lessons to be learned from what happened with this primary season great questions and i want to depict somewhat an irony here and that i'm moving in some respects in opposite direction from the way the movement is in precise Mm -hmm. respect and i'll try to bridge this with the part of your last question that i didn't frankly answer around how the pandemic has affected us because it connects to this So when the pandemic hit, it meant that we couldn't knock on doors anymore, which was Mm -hmm. the centerpiece of our canvassing strategy. We couldn't do events like the happy hours and the volunteer mixers and the meetings with different groups and the the town halls and the teach-ins. We couldn't do any of that. 
So it's really forced us onto the phone. So our campaign voter outreach program is almost entirely phone banking at the moment. And that was a big part of Bernie's effort, right? Um, I come to this race having been a direct action organizer for 20 years. And I see that the movement's trajectory, while many people might have come to our activism through the inspiring lens of a presidential campaign with 50 years of receipts showing up for the interests of American people, I think more and more people are getting outside and beyond electoral politics to recognize all the other ways that they can affect change. Mm -hmm. And so I think the movement from here goes to some extent back to where I started, which is to say beyond politics. We can't pretend that voting or electing people is enough. Issue-based activism, connecting with our neighbors, projects, whether they're mutual aid projects, whether they're advocacy projects. You know, I've, I've coached you know, dozens of coalitions over my time as an advocate to lobbying at their local, state, and federal level of their policymakers to see their concerns, particularly around policing and surveillance, seen into policy. That's something that anybody can do. That doesn't take expertise. All you need is someone who represents you. And here's the fact, you know, one of the glories of our democracy is everyone here is represented not just by one person. You have two senators, you have a federal rep, you have a state rep, you probably have a state, you have a state senator, you probably have county officials, you have local officials who represent you. You have a plethora of targets. And if you approach them individually, it might frankly not be very influential, but if you approach them in groups, right? I mean, my lesson one to any disaffected Bernie activist or anyone else is find six people in your neighborhood, write a letter together, co-sign it, send it to your mayor, send it to every person on your city council, and in it, say everything you want them to do. And if it comes from an organized group of people who co-sign a letter, the reason that's powerful is that when the office holder receives it, an individual letter they can pass off to a staffer and say, hey, write this person a form letter and say we got their letter. And that's usually what happens. But when it's a group, there's a carrot and a stick. The carrot is play nice with our group and you might have our support. The stick is for us and we're going to replace you. And you can make that explicit. That's what I'm doing. I'm making it explicit. Nancy Pelosi has ignored the American people for 30 years and we're here to replace her. You can say that to anybody who represents you and you can say it in concert with your neighbors. Beyond that, I see particularly in response to the pandemic as well as the policing crisis, so many people coming up with creative mutual aid projects. There's a network out of UC Berkeley. I was uh, grateful for the chance to interview a grad student there who recruited their professors to start manufacturing hand sanitizer at scale and distributing it across the city. When I've been out at protests for the Movement for Black Lives, a number of people who've been basically off to the side with carloads full of snacks and water handing it out to people, I can't even count, frankly. You know, that kind of showing up for your neighbors that is the essence of politics. That's where everything starts. We do have to think global. And as Katie said at the beginning of the program, we have to act local. And if we're not acting local, we're kind of wasting our time. And you know, Twitter can be a very beguiling place to share your perspective. And it's important to share your voice online. And it's critical to do more. We can't just vote. We can't just post. We have to take action and connect. And, and that might sound intimidating, but I just say this, a lot of us are battling with any number of challenges at the moment. And one of them is despair and disillusion. Because I'll be honest with you, fascism is rising in the United States. We very nearly lost what remains of our republic last week when the president invited domestic military deployment to suppress dissent. If the retired military generals had not repudiated him publicly, I don't think we would be living in anything that could plausibly call itself the United States of America anymore. I mean, our republic, it's, at least still hangs by a thread and not much more. Um, 
And it's, it's really important in this day and age and at a time like this, not just to participate in the easy mechanisms provided to us like voting, but to carve our own channels for political and social participation, to reclaim our democracy and to make it ours. That's what I see happening under our feet. And that's why I'm so inspired, even in this very dark time. I mean, I see police murdering people with impunity. I see you know, bought corporate politicians pandering and doing these, you know, uh, co-opting kind of moves. And I see a people across the country of every race, every age, every shape, every gender expression, every style in the streets, shoulder to shoulder, even though it's unsafe, marching in solidarity with our neighbors. And I find that incredibly inspiring. Has Nancy Pelosi agreed to debate you? Not yet. I'm, she hasn't debated anyone in 30 years, actually. And I think of that as disqualifying. There is some people might say in a democracy, if you're not willing to defend your record, you shouldn't be running for office. I would say that. And she seems to feel otherwise. I'm very eager to debate her. I think the city deserves a debate. I don't think her record can survive a debate. And I'll just say this. If there are any journalists out there that want to offer San Franciscans an opportunity to hear the choices before them, I'm very eager for news outlets in particular to issue that invitation to the speaker. And I'm very eager for her to show up. Yeah, I'm going to I'm inviting Nancy Pelosi on. I haven't checked with you, Matt, but I'm I'm happy to host. We should host a debate between Pelosi and uh, Shahid. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'd, we'd be happy to moderate that. Yeah. Uh, and for the record, I'm signing up right now. <laughs> excellent excellent well we ho we hope she takes yeah, up the, the accepts that invitation and yeah. we're you know wish you luck with your campaign and uh and all the all the great work you're doing and thanks so much for coming up thanks y'all it's great to be Thank with you, you. So if anybody's much. interested in our campaign they can find us at shahidforchange.us shahidforchange.us okay great excellent and where can they find you on twitter uh, on twitter instagram facebook we're at shahidforchange one word okay terrific Thanks so much. Ed. All right. Thanks take care. You too. Peace. That was great. So you, ha you have a, a thing behind your head that's like a statue or something, right? Hoti. His name is Hoti. But it, it makes it, it look, look like horns. Does it antlers. look like horns? Exactly. Antlers, yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's a Hoti, but yeah, that is yeah. great. I should have something every week that looks weird. It's like our version of the Chris Cuomo windowpane. <laughs> yeah, something something yeah. growing out of your head each yeah. week. But uh, that was great. We, that was that great. That was great. Yeah, he was he was great. He's really interesting. And you know, what's interesting about him is I I think he he's probably both more radical than a lot of uh, Democrats, but he's um, not. He's he's also in defiance of some trends. You know, I think his his uh, he's got the traditional civil libertarian streak from his uh, from his experience as a defense attorney and all that stuff. Um, that is interesting. It kind of re re retains a little bit of uh, you know old liberal tradition, which is interesting. So uh, on that note, uh, listen to us. Don't listen to um, the Axe Files. The Axe Files. I mean, how are you going to listen to something called the Axe Files? I don't know. If you have no self-respect at all, I can understand it. Does he? Yeah. I hope he pays. I hope he has to pay the X-Files, the X-Files for that. Um, but listen to us instead. Uh, suppress their traffic yeah. and uh, tune into us next week. Yeah. The 
Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.